Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. Terrifying things are happening to Kay Wedden, a 40-something single mom and high school teacher in Salisbury, North Carolina. Despite having no known enemies, Kay's home, car, and peace of mind are under attack throughout 1993. Most chilling of all are the senseless attacks on, only, on her only son and the shot fired in the night through a wall of her house, which narrowly misses his head as he sleeps. Kay's new love interest is the charming Victor Gunnarsson. He's a handsome Swede who left his home country to seek political asylum in the U.S. after being charged with the 1986 assassination of Sweden's Prime Minister Palme. Victor was briefly held in custody, but subsequently released due to lack of evidence. The romantic connection between Kay and Victor is immediate and intense until Victor disappears without warning, leaving Kay baffled and sad. Kay leans on her loving elderly mother, Catherine Miller, for solace until Catherine is brutally murdered inside her home by an unknown intruder. With nowhere else to turn, Kay reconnects with her ex-fiancé, Elsie Underwood, a seasoned police officer, particularly adept at criminal investigations. Elsie assures Kay he will get to the bottom of the incessant and tormenting occurrences. When Victor's nude body is found two hours away in the snowy Appalachian Mountains, local sheriff's detective Paula May is assigned to investigate his murder. What follows is an, an intense hair-raising investigation that will shock you from the bitterly cold beginning to the unthinkable end. The book that we're featuring this evening is First Degree Rage, the true story of the assassin and obsession and murder. With my special guest, author and detective, Paula May. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Paula May. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. It's a fascinating book and your first-hand experience and access to this makes this all the more remarkable. Let's go to the Blue Ridge Mountains. Thank you. Let's go to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Appalachia as you do as you introduce us to the story here. Tell us a little bit about uh, your work, a little bit of your background, where you were at this time uh, in 1993 and Watauga County Sheriff's Department in Boone, North Carolina. Just tell us a little bit about your work there and a little bit about the community itself and where it is. Um, Sure. The uh, area uh, is where I was born and grew up, attended uh, elementary school, high school, and college there at Appalachian State University in the city of Boone. And while I was in college, I started working part-time for the local sheriff's office there. And when I graduated um, with criminal justice degree, um, the sheriff hired me full-time. I became a sworn officer, and he sent me to training. And he did not have any female officers at the time. And um, as I began to 
become involved in child abuse cases, rape cases, and cases of domestic violence. Um, there um, appeared to be a, a real need for a female uh, investigator in the Sheriff's Department, and so um, he hired me in the Investigations Division. And I had been working there for about six years, and it was a small division, so we investigated every kind of uh, crime there was. I uh, began to get involved in the more serious investigations, and, and eventually uh, a lot of the um, murder investigations, um, all kinds of death investigations, and violent crimes. And I was on call on this particular day in January. It was actually 1994. So although the book uh, talks a lot about the events of December of 1993, I became involved in 1994. It was January 7th with the discovery of uh, the body of a nude man who was found by um, some Department of Transportation uh, survey workers who were looking for landmarkers in the woods there and um, came upon a pair of bare feet sticking up out of the snow. Now, you originally don't know whose jurisdiction this is because this might be U.S. Park Service or the FBI's jurisdiction. Tell us how you proceed from that, what's the result of that, and who joins you in this investigation. That's correct. Um, the location where the body was found was... Um, kind of in the corner of the woods there at the intersection of the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is, of course, a federal highway, a scenic highway, and a US 421. So um, we, were, we did not know at, at, upon the moment of our arrival if we were going to be on federal property there or um, actually just on the county property, which uh, while we were there, we would have all worked together initially at the crime scene anyway, assisting each other. But as far as the responsibility of the investigation that would follow, um, that would fall with the federal jurisdiction of the Park Service. And, um, you know, I'm sure they would be assisted by the FBI or uh, the primary jurisdiction um, was ours, would be ours. And as it turns out, um, the body was found just 39 feet off of federal property, so it was our um, responsibility for the investigation. I was the detective on call on that day, and it was a very cold, uh, very cold, windy, and snowy day, uh, and I had not intended to uh, do anything but stay in the office that day, but of course, you know, uh, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men kind of thing, but um, mm -hmm. so I ended up with the investigation. You talk about too, and this is you mentioned this this phrase um, a few times in the book, and I think it's important. You talk about divine intervention in that this surveyor found the body, but it was very, very lucky. You say that it wasn't overlooked, and you attributed this as just one of the uh, instances of divine intervention in this, don't you? Absolutely, and I can tell you that from beginning to end of that investigation, and of course not just that investigation, but um, absolutely, uh, uh, God had led our footsteps uh, through that investigation, and um, He, uh, I'm 100% uh, convinced the case would not have been 
uh, solved otherwise because from um, the beginning of the discovery of the body all the way to the end of the discovery of the amazing discovery of the physical evidence, I think that was the nail in his coffin, so to speak. Um, I think that was all uh, divine in- intervention, absolutely. It was also some now, good investigative work, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, um, absolutely. But, absolutely. But he, uh, he, uh, he helped us all the way through, as he does. Now, your long-term uh, sheriff, you have a relationship with him, Lyons, he said, let's get the SBI to help us. Uh, and that's the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. So a uh, yes. person came temporarily, um, uh, Sellers, an agent Sellers, but then the, the agent that was assigned was Steve Wilson. So Steve Wilson became part of your investigative team. Um, yes. What did you get from that original crime scene? You talked about... Um, the victim being nude, the you had found that the body had been there for some days and some animal predation had, had occurred on the ear and the nose, things, you know, which is not yes. uncommon. What did you comment, before you tell me about what you could deduce, you and your team could deduce from that crime scene itself initially, what did you deduce, deduce from the idea that this person in the winter was left nude in the snow? Well... At, um, in the beginning, uh, as only his feet were, you know, visible coming out of the snow, we did not know at that point if his entire body was nude because um, that was all that we could see. But obviously um, there was some animal activity on his left foot. He was laying on his back, and both his feet were up out of the snow, but there was some um, animal activity um, on his uh, left left foot and toes, and so that caused us to think he had been there at least you know for some time um, but also because of the extreme cold temperatures, um, his body was very well preserved, um, whereas if it had been spring or summertime, the decomposition would have been a lot greater, and there would be um, less evidence to obtain from the autopsy and so forth. But um, once we began to um, remove a little bit of the snow uh, from him and we um, we did try to preserve as much as we could of the dirt and the snow and things right around his body as we loaded him onto the stretcher because we did not know if there were you know other pieces of maybe trace and fiber evidence in that snow. But after we realized that he was nude, um, we did see that he had a watch and a ring on his left hand. So um, we felt at that point that it was unlikely to have been a robbery um, because those items appeared to be gold and appeared to be, you know, of some value. Also, it was clearly evident that he was shot twice in the head, once on the left uh, temple and then on the right side of his neck. So it was very obviously a, a murder uh, and not a suicide. Of course, there was no weapon there and so forth. But there were no other identifying uh, characteristics that we could see at that point. And we knew that within our own jurisdiction, we did not have an active missing person report currently. Right. You had the, uh, another bit of evidence, though, what was important was two kinds of tape so that you could conclude that the victim was bound with tape when he was shot. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about this tape discovery. Sure. Uh, Absolutely. 
and it was Sheriff Lyons himself who found that tape, um, not the uh, crime scene investigators. But um, as we were waiting for uh, the State Bureau of Investigation um, to arrive with the field agent and um, then the crime scene team, which we had requested um, because of the sheer you know, size of the area that, that needed to be uh, covered, we um, did try to locate anything that we could see before darkness fell because this is in the in the evening on this day, the late afternoon. And um, so uh, two or three feet away from the body, um, Sheriff Lyons was uh, examining um, some of the area on the ground and he uncovered a length of tape. And um, it was uh, one strip of uh, tape, but that particular strip, which was probably about 18 inches long, that particular strip was made of both masking tape and black electrical tape. And the right. masking tape was underneath. And the back of the masking tape, where the adhesive uh, compound is, um, were adhered, um, appeared to be head hairs, dark, short um, hair, and tiny droplets of blood, and also one very notable hole that appeared to be a about a 22 caliber caliber um, bullet hole, which it was, and um, then uh, eventually we were able to uh, show that the hair and the blood um, all came from uh, the body of the victim. So there was no evidence from that particular piece of tape as far as, far as um, being able to link the suspect to that tape, with the exception of the electrical tape which um, later we found to match in 20-some different characteristics with electrical tape that was found in the suspect's residence. Okay, let's get back to um, what you found at this. Uh, with the, you have the tape. You also yes. have that you get a call shortly after while you're looking through missing reports in the county itself. You get a call from a Lieutenant Harrison from Salisbury Police Department, which is two hours southeast of Boone, between Winston-Salem right. and Charlotte. Uh, so this person is identified as 41-year-old Victor Gunnerson. And uh, as we mentioned in the introduction, what, what do you find out, you and your team, about this Victor Gunnerson and his past? Very interesting. Well, that was um, when I, probably the first time I realized this was not going to be an ordinary homicide case. Because what I'd learned from that initial uh, conversation with Lieutenant Harrison was that um, they had a man whose physical description in general fit the physical description that we had broadcast about our unidentified murdered body. And he said, and of course we don't know for certain if this is the same man or not, but as I'm talking to him on this phone call, he shares with me that if it is Victor Gunnerson, um, Victor Gunnerson had been living in his jurisdiction, the city of Salisbury, in Rowan County, North Carolina, and had been there because he had fled the country of Sweden seeking political asylum. And in fact, he had been arrested and charged with the assassination of Prime Minister Olaf Palme in February of 1986. Um, what I learned um, subsequently was, of course, more details about that, but essentially he had been uh, arrested fairly quickly after the assassination and uh, he had he was in custody 
and his wife, uh, or the wife of the prime minister who was with him at the time he was shot, um, got a glimpse of the shooter's face. And so when they presented um, her with a lineup, which included Victor Gunnarsson, she was unable to identify Victor Gunnarsson from that lineup, and so they released him from custody. And then Victor Gunnarsson ended up suing the government, claiming false arrest and so forth, and came to the United States. Right. That assassination, by the way, remains unsolved to this day. Now let's get to Victor Gunnarsson. Once, obviously, they find him in the woods, naked, and there's little evidence of to point to any perpetrator. Now you go right. to his apartment. What do you find with his apartment? And how do you proceed after going to that apartment? As you write in the book, you tell us the proper procedure is to reach out to all kinds of people, associates, neighbors. Tell us a little bit about how, once you find out about Victor, how do you proceed with finding out more information about how he came to his demise? So there was a number of avenues that um, we initially explored from the very beginning. Of course, we were trying to get the body identified, so we're speaking with um, Interpol and, and other uh, national and international organizations and law enforcement agencies to help us uh, get dental records and fingerprints and so forth from Sweden to identify him. And at the same time, we're talking with those authorities and learning more about him, his family, what happened with him in Sweden, and the um, assassination of the prime minister. So that was very intriguing to me, dealing with all of those international agencies in a homicide investigation. Um, but at the same time, um, I also learned that Victor Gunnarsson had been reported missing in December from um, his apartment in Salisbury. And because that he was reported missing to the local authorities there, they had been investigating uh, the missing persons report. So there were officers who had already gone to Victor Gunnarsson's apartment. And although you know they did not alter anything or so forth, but there had been other officers present there to give us an idea of what to expect before we ever went there. And so uh, Don Gale, who is a major character in the book, was the field agent um, assigned to the, uh, to the case there. And um, Terry Agner was an investigator with the Rowan County Sheriff's Office. So they were, they were already involved and in teaming up, investigating from that end, just like Steve Wilson and I and the others were investigating from uh, Watauga County. So we met up with him very quickly, and the four of us very quickly um, combined efforts to um, you know, carry out the investigation. But to answer your question, once uh, we got inside Victor's apartment, um, we found he was living on an end apartment of a, a two-story complex. So he was on the second story on the end with a set of steps right beside his apartment. Um, we learned that his apartment door had not been shut and locked all of the all the way since he was reported missing. His only car was still in its parking spot where he always parked it, and in the same manner he always parked it because he never pulled in straight. It was a long car, uh, the Lincoln, and he parked it um, diagonal, and it was still parked that way. 
inside his apartment, his passport, his keys, his wallet was still there, his shoes, his leather jacket that he wore all the time. And it appeared that possibly from the way his bed was that he had been in bed and just pulled the covers back and gotten up out of the bed um, and speculating maybe that, you know, he had gotten up to answer the door. What about the what did the officer note about the telephone and message and those days an answering machine attached to a telephone? So initially, the the apartment manager um, and the custodian of the apartments and other people had noticed that um, the answering machine was on and he appeared to have several messages. But by the time that we and other law enforcement got in there, um, the cassette tape was missing out of his. Uh, answering machine, and um, the answering machine was no longer working. And people that tried to call him and check on him before his body was ever found um, noted that all of a sudden his answering machine had changed, and what they heard um, allowed them to uh, allow them to not be able to leave a voicemail message. Right. Whereas they had before, yeah. Now, in this investigation, like I had mentioned, do you have to find out who could possibly know, so you you look up the associates of everyone um, to find out if there's anybody that knows anything about this. Again, this is there's so many mysteries to this, and you, you read at the very beginning of this investigation. How does it come that you find out about Kay Whedon? Tell us about that. Okay. Um, it's Whedon, Kay Whedon, and... Um, so Don Gale and Terry Agner are the investigators in um, Salisbury. One of the first things that they made us aware of was the fact that they were investigating the homicide of a Mrs. Catherine Miller. She was murdered inside her home, two gunshots to the head. Um, she was 77 years old, no known enemies, and um, that homicide had occurred on uh, December 8th of 1993. And... Um, the one thing that linked Victor Gunnarsson and his murder to the murder of Catherine Miller was the fact that Catherine Miller's daughter was Kay Whedon. Kay Whedon had also been dating Victor Gunnarsson for about a week before he went missing. So she was the common denominator in both of those investigations. And um, so that... um, immediately drew the attention of the investigators to her and began a series of many, many interviews and conversations with Kay Whedon, also with her son, Jason Miller. Or Jason Whedon, I'm sorry. Now, what did you find out initially from this about his his behavior, but also his character? What did you find out right from the get-go from speaking with Kay about this person? About Victor Gunnarsson or about someone else? About when you talk about uh, when you talk to Kay and when you yep. talk to her about about uh, about her boyfriend, about the person that she leaned on, about the cop. So okay, when she when she talks about that, when you are talking to her about her relationship with Underwood. What does she say about his character? What is, right from the get-go, some of the things she has to say about the relationship? Um, She said that her relationship with her former 
um, fiance whose name was Elsie Underwood was very dysfunctional. Um, it was very controlling. Um, Underwood was very manipulative towards her, very threatening, and um, I heard very little um, that was positive about their relationship. Now, at the beginning, and as we learned from talking with other women that had been involved with him in his past, at the beginning, he was very charming. Um, he was, um, he seemed like he had everything together and, uh, you know, every every woman's dream. And um, the uh, the most interesting part to me about about him when I first learned about him was the fact that he was a police officer and he was currently employed at the in December of nineteen ninety three as a school resource officer for the city of Salisbury. Right. When you spoke with uh, Kay Whedon as well, you talked about the relationship with Victor as you discover that there was this relationship. Tell us how she met Victor and the nature of their relationship, and then you spoke to her about that very last evening that they spent together. Okay. Kay um, was, at the time, an uh, English teacher at the local high school, not at the high school where um, Underwood worked, but um, nearby. And she, of course, was a single mom. She was divorced, and she was raising her teenage son, Jason. And um, as had been as she had done before, she had an exchange student in her home who was um, Jason, her son's age, and his name was Mikkel, and he was from um, Denmark, I, I believe. And um, so there was a little trouble communicating uh, at times, and one of Kay's girlfriends had said that she had a friend that was from Sweden, and apparently they had a lot of things in common, and um, she wanted to introduce Kay to her friend, who turned out to be Victor Gunnarsson, so that um, they could all get together and Mikkel, you know, could have someone uh, that he could communicate well with and talk with and so forth. So a mutual friend introduced Kay uh, to Victor, and apparently there was, um, you know, sparks right away and uh, mutual attraction. And they started talking and had lengthy conversations and began seeing each other. And that was just uh, over a week or so before Victor went missing. So they saw each other practically every night, you know, had long conversations on the phone and so forth. And the last time that Kay saw Victor was the night of Friday, December 3rd, when um, she, her mother, and Victor had gone out to dinner at a local seafood restaurant. And um, then Victor had uh, come over to her house and um, had spent the evening. They, uh, Jason came home a little later, and he and his friends and Kay and Victor were all sitting around the fire pit right outside Kay's home um, by the street, you know, just chatting and talking. And it was at that time that Kay noticed and had some conversation with Victor about um, the uh, signet ring that he was wearing, which is the ring that um, he was still wearing when his body was discovered in Watauga County. But um, it was during that night that they saw um, a car they recognized drive by, and Jason made the comment, Monte Carlo, uh, to communicate to Kay that that was Underwood driving by. Now, Kay knew that she had been the subject of his stalking, of Underwood's stalking for some time, but, um, you know, was hoping that, 
that that was becoming a thing of the past and that he was no longer uh, terrorizing her, but he, he was indeed still stalking her. Now, in your investigation, and I know that the audience will be still not clear of, of what's going on in this story, but in your right. investigation, you talked to all kinds of people, including the former police chief or the police chief of Salisbury Police Department, and, and talk about Underwood, Lamont C. Underwood, and his stay there, and some of the things that happened in his tenure as a police officer. So, as you write in the book, tell us what you found out about his career and, and again, his career and his, his character as a police officer. Well, so the book begins with when I got involved in the case, and then, um, and so this is just exactly the order that things happen as far as the investigation. Once we realized that Underwood's name kept coming up and that he had become a suspect in the uh, you know, in both situations, Catherine Miller and, and Victor Gunnerson, we went back to the very beginning to um, Underwood's childhood and started investigating um, every everything that we could find about him. And we learned that um, he had been abandoned by both his parents. Um, he had stayed with some family members for a short time, and that it was a physically abusive and mentally abusive situation. They eventually pretty much dumped him off at the... Um, orphanage in the city of Winston-Salem where he grew up once he turned 18. Um, the day he turned 18, he left there and um, he attempted a, a brief military career. Um, he got right back out and uh, so he went into a law enforcement career and he started working at uh, North Wilkesboro Police Department as a reserve officer and from uh, and everybody that's in this area all, you know, all these places are familiar. But he went from there to um, another agency and another agency and another agency. And each time that he spent at, at, at each agency, he would eventually get into trouble um, over a woman or women um, and some dysfunctional relationships, some um, very violent relationships where he would stalk them, he would um, beat them. One lady spent several days in hospital. Um, but he terrorized them in many different ways, and probably the worst was the psychological, because we find him um, spray-painting graffiti on uh, their homes, or in one case, on the outside wall of this lady's church, something really um, ugly yeah. and derog derogatory, and it's always in red spray paint. And in incidentally, red spray paint, paint cans were found in uh, in the trunk of his patrol car at one of the departments. Right. And so back then, and this is particularly something that uh, gets under my skin, is the lack of documentation in the personnel files. We would get our court orders and we'd go there and we'd hear about these things happen, happening and when we get to these agencies, we'd look in his personnel file and there's no documentation of these incidents there. So mm -hmm. then we went and we would try to find find, uh, you know, uh, the sheriff, the chief, or a supervisor and talk with them. And in many cases, um, it was a time period where that kind of documentation just was not maintained, where they preferred to handle things face-to-face um, -face personally. And a, a sheriff, for instance, would um, say, you know, no need to write all that down. I just need to handle it, you know, man-to-man. -man. And so yeah. he got very little discipline. He got a lot of lectures, but very little discipline. And if it got to be too heated, he would just move on to another law enforcement agency. 
that carried him for 19 years in law enforcement. I think he'd been eight years with the Salisbury Police Department um, before he was finally suspended. It's just unbelievable to me. Um, having been uh, a police chief for, you know, the past 10 years, uh, we document everything, even, and certainly in the investigations, everything is documented. And so it was a different time period, and I realized that, but it just, you know, it would get under my skin that there was not uh, documentation of these things that, for, number one, were criminal in nature and should have taken a certification, but, you know, a, lot, a lack of documentation, a, lot, a lack of discipline, um, you know, I just have a problem with that. There are women that you speak to in this to learn, again, about the behavior and character of Elsie Underwood, Lamont Underwood. Uh, there are women like Pam and Jeannie and Linda and Monica at different times in this investigation. What yes. Tell us about just the, in general some of the conversations and the information you garner from speaking to these people regarding his character behavior. Well, after the first couple of uh, ladies that I spoke with, and they were all um, they were all educated women. They were they were not ignorant. They you know they uh, they were educated. They were intelligent. Uh, they were very attractive. They were very successful in their careers, and they um, all uh, seemed to have a very good support system as far as their family and their social network. But after about right. the second one, all the stories were the same. Uh, only the faces and the names changed. But um, their relationships were described to me as all starting out the same way. Um, Elsie was very uh, charming. He was uh, very polite. He was very sensitive and very caring. And then he became very controlling. Um, so he could only maintain that facade for, for a short period of time. And he, each one of them he wanted to push into a serious relationship very quickly. And, um, and three of them into marriage very quickly. And, of course, those marriages did not, did not last. But he would become very jealous, possessive, whether it was one of the girls going to the beach with her friends, and he, he just about came unglued because she had done that every summer, and that was a girl's trip that they would take and enjoy. Uh, perfectly innocent, but he would just he would go nuts um, if they did not get home uh, after work at the uh, time that he thought they should arrive home. Um, he, he would go nuts. One uh, girl in particular, he she realized that he was watching her from across of a lake at her house and was counting the grocery bags that she was carrying in her house and immediately calls her and asks her, why, you know, who are you seeing? Why do you need so many bags of groceries? And just ridiculous things like that. And the more they tried to get away from him, um, the more angry and violent that he became. Right. Now, in this investigation as well, there is the bullet wounds, uh, from that, there was an investigation to try to obviously try to determine what that murder weapon was and to find it if possible. Tell us about yes. that 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 look or that investigation into that gun and what he so might. Victor, right. So Victor Gunnison was shot with a 22 um, caliber weapon, and um, Catherine Miller was uh, murdered with. Uh, two shots of um, a 38, and um, we knew 
specific makes and models that could possibly have fired those guns, and then other makes and models that could not have fired those guns. But um, we knew from interviews and from other records that um, Underwood did have both of those weapons um, that could have been fired. But throughout the investigation, um, as you know from reading the book, um, those weapons disappeared very quickly after the murders and to this day have never been located. One in particular, he had um, kept from one of the law enforcement agencies where he worked. And so there's, you know, there's records about that, that gun. And then we have eyewitnesses, people I talked to, that saw the gun, that saw it at his house or saw him with it. And so we knew uh, with uh, you know, certainty that he had those, each of those weapons up until the time of the murders. How do you proceed with this investigation once you get a clear picture that this is your suspect? Uh, tell us more about tightening the noose around this suspect. Again, it was not an easy or quick process. Tell us what you do next. It was not a quick process, and it was further complicated by the fact that he was a law enforcement officer. So um, as you can imagine, um, People um, employed at those agencies were reluctant to want to get involved in this investigation. Um, some were very defensive of him. Some believed there was absolutely no way that he could, that he would be capable of committing such horrible acts. Others who knew him on a personal level were familiar um, with his personality quirks and then with his um, following, checking up on, stalking of Kay Whedon. And um, so they knew more about his personality, and they were, although hesitant to say, yeah, I think he killed these people, they were more like, well, I think it's possible that he might have. But um, we did not, we weren't railroaded in the investigation. Um, we weren't uh, given false information, but it was a little difficult because people were reluctant to get involved and talk with us. Other people, uh, um, other people were very forthcoming with their information. We talked to hundreds, interviewed hundreds of people during this investigation, um, all four of us. And um, so every, everybody might have a small piece of information, but they had a lot to contribute. But what we ended up with um, ultimately was a strong circumstantial case. We did not have any physical evidence. The first physical evidence that we found was when the lab contacted us, and um, well, in, in February, uh, we had conducted um, a search via a search warrant of Underwood's residence. And um, one of the items that uh, we seized from his residence was some electrical tape from his utility room, from his uh, where his washer and dryer were. And um, the first call we got with some physical evidence was John Bendura of the State Bureau of Investigation, the crime lab. And he had informed us that uh, in 20-some different characteristics of the tape, that the tape from um, Underwood's utility room matched the tape that Sheriff Lyons found at the feet of the body at the crime scene. So that was our first piece of physical evidence. But in talking with the prosecutor in Watauga County, um, the elected district attorney at that time was Tom Ruscher, a brilliant uh, prosecutor. And... Um, but he did not feel like that alone was a, a strong enough case that he wanted to take um, to a jury in a capital murder trial. 
So he wanted us to keep working. We ended up with uh, putting a trap and trace and pen register on uh, Underwood's phone, monitoring uh, the numbers that came in and out of his uh, home phone. We um, put a, uh, a mail cover on his on his uh, uh, all his incoming and outgoing mail, so that that those were copied, so that we could see who was he, who he was getting communications from that way. And um, then um, the lab had all of the evidence that they had seized for comparison purposes that came from the um, search warrant execution. And we had been in contact with uh, John Bandura of the lab many times, and he just was simply not finding anything in the evidence that would uh, connect um, Underwood to the crime scene or to Victor Gunnarsson's murder. And um, in fact, a couple of the items that were seized were um, the maps out of both of his personal vehicles, his uh, floor, right. ma floor maps and the trunk maps. And um, until he, he called us about what he found on that particular, at that particular time, we did not have anything but the tape as far as his evidence. Now, before we talk about what he discovered, and again, you, you note that as, a, again, an incident of divine intervention. But, but before we talk about that, of all the people that you spoke to, what picture were you getting of, of where you should go with this investigation in terms of trying to get that bit of information that will be useful for Tom Ruscher to be able to prosecute? Tell us of, of, of the because you talk about satellite imaging. So you guys went to all kinds of extent to try to be able to solve this case. Tell us a little bit more about the extent of this investigation. Well, there were many many things that we tried in the investigation. Um, everything from uh, satellite imaging, as you mentioned. At one point, we even went to the police firing range, where um, we actually dug up some of the um, uh, rounds that had been fired into uh, the targets and the bank there at the firing range um, where he typically uh, went to shoot thinking that we could at least be able to show, again, circumstantially, that um, where he had gone, those uh, rounds would match uh, in uh, different compositions so forth the uh, rounds that were fired into um, Victor Gunnarsson and or Catherine Miller. And that was, um, that was interesting, and we got a lot of information, but nothing really specific that the kind of um, uh, identifying information that we were looking for. So um, most of our information came from interviews. Um, we did have another very um, compelling piece of information because um, the license plate of Victor Gunnarsson was uh, ran um, uh, through the police system on the night of uh, December 3rd, 1993, the same night that Kay Whedon had spent her last date with um, Victor Gunnarsson. Right. So what happened at, at that time was that, and later we learned that Underwood and another person had driven by her house, again, stalking her, although the person that was with him um, he gave another pretense as to why they were going by there. But um, 
he had gone by, saw a strange car um, parked at her house, and most likely saw them outside uh, of her house as they were talking with each other. And um, he had gone back to his house, called a buddy of his that worked with the sheriff's office and had him call and run that tag number. And that officer got the information as far as the name and address and so forth and uh, called Underwood and back and gave it to him that night, the night that Victor went missing. Yes, incredible. Let's use this as an opportunity, Paula, to stop for a second to talk about our sponsor, which is Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digest from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. You can listen across devices without losing your spot. And if you can't decide what to listen to, don't worry. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you like. I chose another fantastic audiobook last week from Audible, Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators, incredible book written by Ronan Farrow, dramatically narrated by Ronan himself. He's the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who exposes serial abusers and a cabal of powerful interest hell-bent on covering up the truth at any cost. In an amazing story and investigation by Ronan Farrow, and I believe it's all the more powerful when the author himself tells his own story in his own dramatic voice. Experience an Audible audiobook today. Visit audible.com slash truemurder or text truemurder to 500-500. Visit audible.com slash truemurder or text truemurder to 500-500. Now, Paula, we spoke Mm -hmm. about the news tightening around L.C. Underwood, and that by virtue of the fiber uh, forensic specialist Bandura saying that he had found, again, you've you've cited as divine intervention, what does he find that ends up being the key to be able to convince Tom Ruscher that you do have enough evidence to be able to arrest, finally, Elsie Underwood? When we executed the search warrant and um, a number of items were seized and checked, as I described, and um, those... uh, maps from the both of uh, Underwood's cars. One um, of the items that he had was a trunk mat from uh, Underwood's Monte Carlo. It was a piece of carpet. You know, very common people have those in, in the trunks of their cars. And sure. so he had taken it back to the lab. I believe it was 11 months that he had that um, particular item in the laboratory, and he had taken vacuuming. He had um, uh, gone through... With, uh, with tapings um, to uh, collect and pick up fibers and hair and, and debris, whatever might be on that trunk mat. Now, we already knew before we had executed the search warrant and seized those items that um, shortly after the those murders occurred, Underwood had taken both of his cars, his personal cars, 
to um, a professional car wash and had um, the entire uh, interiors and exteriors clean from both of those cars, including uh, having them shampoo and vacuum his trunk mats, which most people don't do that usually. And sure. um, so we thought that was odd. That So the lab had those items, and they had gone through, and they had tried to collect things from the from the carpeted trunk mats and had came up with nothing uh, of significance. However, on, after 11 months of analyzing this evidence, John Bender called and he said, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And um, he said that he was rolling the mat up to package to mail back to us because he had found nothing on that. And he has, as he was rolling, rolling that mat up, and holding it up under the light, a single hair caught his eye that he had not uh, seen or removed from that trunk mat. And so he pulled it out. He said, in fact, by the time he got finished, there were, I believe, 17 um, hairs in that trunk mat that were so um, ingrained in the fiber of the trunk mat that the traditional methods of the tapings and the vacuumings had not pulled them loose. And he actually had to go through, and at one point he even cut the fiber of the mat to pull the hair out without breaking it. And um, he had looked at them under a microscope, and microscopically they were consistent with the head hair of Victor Gunderson, which we had previously submitted to him. And um, it was not a definitive match because um, it wasn't a DNA match, but microscopically they were consistent. And we became very excited at that point. But um, that's what I mean by divine intervention. Um, as far as his, you know, his uh, scientific abilities, he had he had done everything physically um, possible to collect that evidence. But when he held it up to the light, which of course there's a lot of symbolism there, um, but when he held it up to the light, that's when he mm -hmm. saw the hair that, um, you know, that was the combination of everything in in the case for us ultimately. Now you talk about the again the jubilation or excitement about this new development. Um, is it enough to make an arrest? And tell us about speaking finally with Elsie Underwood, as you do. Well, it was certainly uh, it was we had already surpassed um, the uh, burden of proof as far as probable cause. Um, we had that. We had a probable cause to make the arrest with the circumstantial evidence. However, this uh, physical evidence plus the physical evidence of the electrical tape, you know, they were very strong and very compelling. But we wanted to do everything that we could, and we were hoping for a DNA match. But John Bandura said there, that there was not enough of um, DNA in those hairs to extract to make a DNA comparison. So along the way, some of the things that we had read were... Um, uh, about mitochondrial DNA analysis, and mitochondrial DNA analysis have been used to identify um, the bones of the Russian czar, and we had heard about that in the news. And so we started looking into mitochondrial DNA analysis, which was relatively new at the time. And mitochondrial DNA, for um, all the listeners out there that, that might not know, comes from the maternal side of your family. And um, ultimately, the FBI crime lab had gone online doing the mitochondrial DNA analysis and had um, 
Joe Dezino had called me one day of the federal crime lab, and uh, very similar to talking with John Bandura and told me that he had a mitochondrial DNA match on the um, from the hair, uh, and that's taken from the actual shaft of the hair as opposed to the the root end of the hair where traditional DNA analysis can be taken from. But um, what made that so compelling for us was the fact that anybody. And on the maternal side of the family could have shared that same DNA, but because Victor Gunnarsson had came from Sweden and none of his other family members on the maternal side of his family had ever been to the United States, it basically eliminated everybody in this country except for Victor Gunnarsson. So that was just like a perfect match for us. So when we took that information to um, Tom Reischer, um we had already made the arrest. We had already decided to arrest Underwood on what we had at that point, but the mitochondrial DNA analysis was, you know, um, icing on the cake. What you can conclude from, also from that forensic specialist, is that the hair was deposited there. Again, it, it, this was one of the more vivid scenes in terms of somebody speculating what happened to Victor Gunnarsson. Tell us how... Yes. You speculated that those hairs got there. Again, divine well, intervention, we, I would think. Absolutely divine intervention. But we talked about it many times. And and Victor Gunnarsson, in, um, as he was kidnapped and placed into the trunk of Underwood's car, it was very evident that he was alive. There were scratch marks inside the lid of the, of the trunk of his car. Um, we know he was from the tape that he was bound, at least to some degree, um, there was what we believe a footprint or a shoe print on the underside of the trunk lid. And we believe that he laid there uh, on that trip from Salisbury to Watauga County in the trunk of that car in the freezing cold weather, um, struggling, trying to um, free himself, trying to, to, uh, trying to move around, trying to do anything, um, and in so doing, deposited those hairs in the... Uh, just wallowing around and struggling into the fiber of the carpeted trunk mat. And despite Underwood's efforts to remove any trace of physical evidence, because, of course, he had been a detective, he was a police officer, he thought that he could commit the perfect crime. He was unsuccessful because there is a greater judge that we all have to, to answer to and who's in control of such things. And there was uh, no combat, combating that. Um, my opinion that, you know, that's spiritual warfare and, and um, we had Victor on our side and certainly uh, he came through for it with it for us in that particular investigation. Now you have this evidence and like I mentioned, do you have the opportunity to speak to Elsie Underwood and hear what he has to say about everything? because he complains about his treatment, he complains about the SBI agents continually throughout this book. He talks to all kinds of people, his former police officer friends, and he does have police officer friends, people in law enforcement. He complains about his treatment, unfair. He complains about the treatment by Kay and all these other women that, that cheated on him and, and betrayed yeah. him and everything. But what does what do you get from him in these conversations that's, either incriminating or valuable for you to understand what had happened to Catherine Miller and to Victor Gunnarsson? Well, by the time that I actually sat down with just uh, 
just me and him in a room in the jail. Um, I felt like I already knew him as much as I could ever know anyone else because of, we had talked to so many different people, and they came from all walks of life, all economic classifications, all ages, all, you know, and everybody's picture they painted of Elsie Underwood was the same. Um, even though some def- would defend him, as they described his personality, it was obviously the same man. He was very troubled. He was um, at times depressed, but he was extremely anger and angry, and that anger came out in, um, in every uh, communication that we had with, with anybody who knew Underwood. And um, like I said, I'd gone from the time that he was born all the way through his personal history, his professional history, so that by the time that he and I were sitting in that room talking, um, and in fact, I told him, I, I told him, you know, I already know, you, you can't tell me anything about your life that I don't already know. And we talked about that for a little bit. And I said, I also know that you killed Victor Gunnerson and you killed Catherine Miller. And he said the only thing that um, would even come close to being a confession, and at that time, he just looked at me and he said, well. And um, so um, he would never admit um, to what he had done. He, could ne- he had never his entire life taken responsibility for anything he had done uh, to Kay or to any of those other women. And, and though he accused them of many things, um, as far as I could tell, none of them had ever wronged him. They had never done anything other than be good to him. And Kay Whedon especially, she expressed concern for him and care for his safety uh, long after I would have, I would have, you know, said, you know, <laughs> sign R. But um, she endured a lot. She's uh, she's uh, a very strong person. Uh, she's a survivor, and there's a lot that could be said about Kay Whedon, but. Um, when I talked to Underwood that day, we had we had some communications before because when we arrested him and so forth, we had talked. But that day, when he wanted to talk to me, he he basically wanted to glean from me. And I guess being young and female, perhaps he thought maybe that he would could manipulate um, mm-hmm. me and obtain information. But um, I don't think that conversation went the way he thought it would. You continue with your team to find people that, again, tighten this noose, but also find just more incriminating circumstantial evidence that puts him not only at Victor Gunnarsson's, but you have evidence uh, of of Catherine uh, Catherine Miller's murder as well in terms of, again, circumstantial motive, opportunity, and and supporting people that seem to be, as this investigation continues, even though he's in prison, he still has people that are on his side. And then what's very fascinating is when you get to speak to these people. When your team gets to speak to uh, the police officers who had run those tags, and then you get the police officer to make some calls to talk to Elsie Underwood. So people are very cooperative once they know the truth about Elsie Underwood. Tell us about how you finally come to know and discover about Rex Weller. Okay, it's Keller, Rex Keller. But, um, oh, pardon me. Uh, no problem. Uh, so before we um, got to the hair evidence, before we had that, 
on the anniversary of Catherine Miller's murder, and this was Don Gale's idea, and he had lots of creative ideas. Um, he and Terry and Steve all did, but Don was particularly creative. And um, he suggested that we air on the local news uh, TV channel a recording that had been made to Kay Whedon threaten, threatening her, and threatening her life and her son. And um, so we knew it was not the voice of Underwood, but we suspected that Underwood had had someone else make the call. So we did um, play that recording on the local uh, TV news channel, and lo and behold, a man called and said, I know that voice, I know exactly who it is. And it turned out to be um, the federal probation officer of Rick's killer. And he said, I have him on probation. I see him talk with him regularly, and I know for a fact that that is his voice. And so at that point, we did not contact Keller right away. We did some background investigation, a whole other, just basically a, <laughs> another entire investigation just on Keller alone. And we talked with his associates as well, um, people, women that he had been involved uh, with and so forth, and found out their personalities were very similar. Um, and we talked about this a lot in, you know, criminal psychology classes about how um, people have a way of finding each other that um, behave or have similar personalities. And um, so ultimately by the time that we came to talk to him, um, he had gotten out of federal prison and um, was getting his life in order and I understand he has done that now and um, has a family and so forth. But um, he was very cooperative with, with us at that point. And um, he was actually a, a, a great witness um, against Underwood in the trial. You spoke to also Jason, and it's very interesting uh, when Elsie Underwood tries to direct the focus of police and, and also friends to suspect Jason. Tell us about, about this seemingly ludicrous notion that he espouses to people. It, it was, but the more time that went by and he wasn't arrested, I believe he became more arrogant and thought himself to be more intelligent. Um, but what I believe he was doing at the time was setting Jason up, number one, to make Jason look like perhaps he had um, committed the murders, but more likely it was that he intended to harm or even uh, murder Jason. He was resentful of anyone who um, that Kay was uh, attached to emotionally. Her mother, and certainly her son, fell into that same category, but I believe that he was setting Jason up. The things that he was doing, sending anonymous letters, making uh, threatening phone calls, um, was under the guise of a, a, a fictitious claim that, that Jason was involved in drugs and that he had drug debts and that these mysterious drug dealers were you know, threatening his life and were going to come and get him. So that if Jason did turn up dead, um, the police would believe that it was because of drug activity. Um, but none of that was true. Um, we found no evidence of that in the investigation at all. And Jason was very young at the time. He, he did not even have his, his driver's license. And um, his whereabouts were always accounted for. Um, Kay was, you know, a very responsible parent. 
And um, so we knew that there was no truth to those allegations. But um, Underwood, when he would talk with people and they would later share with us his comment, Underwood would um, always disparage Jason and um, talk about how spoiled he was, how um, much of a discipline and behavior problem he was and so forth, and how Kay and Catherine Miller babied him and, and so forth. He was, he was very jealous of, of Jason. So, um, you know, children are very intuitive, and Jason was aware of uh, Underwood's feelings towards him, and he was concerned about Underwood's lack of... Uh, genuine caring for his mother, for Kay. And so he did not care for him very much, and uh, understandably so. He also, uh, Underwood also wanted to put the blame for the vandalism on Jason owing some dealers, uh, drug dealers money. So he, he also right. tried to to direct blame of, uh, towards Jason and his friends for that spray painting and that ugly vandalism, as you call it. Yeah, he didn't do a good job of, of convincing anyone of that, but he did try mm-hmm. to blame Jason. You get to talk to a woman named Beth Richardson. Uh, that's a fascinating yeah. conversation. And it's always interesting, the first approach to some of these witnesses, and then you tell them some incredible evidence, incredible things that they didn't know about him, and then it, the thing turns. So tell us about the conversation with Richardson and what she parts to you? Well, while we were investigating, and I, I mentioned that we had the pin register and the trap and trace, we could see that he was having a number of, of phone calls, lengthy phone calls with someone in particular, and that turned out to be Beth and her, her phone number uh, lent us to her. She um, was in the initial stages of a dating relationship with Underwood. I think he had met her at a shag dancing club. And so she still, she at that point in her defense had not gotten a good taste of uh, uh, of Underwood's personality, and or you know his crazy jealousy, and um, so uh, Don and another agent had gone initially and knocked on her door and approached her, and she was very adamant um, to them that she was not going to talk to them, that. Um, she already knew all about them and how they were trying to frame um, Underwood because he had told her all about it. But, you know, in her defense, all she had ever heard was his side of the story. And um, so basically Don and the other agent got the door slammed in their face. But Don had left his card and a number uh, with Beth and said, you know, if you change your mind and you want to talk or whatever, you know, here's my number, give me a call. And Don didn't think that she was going to call because she was so mad when they got there. And I told Don, I said, she, she's going to call. She's going to call you back. And sure enough, uh, she did. And she said, I've been talking with my parents, and maybe after looking back at things, maybe we'll just hear what you have to say, you know, just to, you know, get the other side of the story. So at that point, we decided it was a good idea maybe for me to go with Don and talk with her. So so Don and I went and met with her and her family, and they just, they had no idea, um, you know, what, who else he was really or what he had been involved in. And at that point, um, Elsie found out that we had talked with her, I guess because she had 
attempted to end the relationship at that point, and he was furious. I mean, he he immediately paged on, and instead of calling him back immediately, we go back to the office and set up the recorder and so forth, and then Don called, and we just listened to him rant. And that conversation um, verbatim is in the book, and um, it's not a nice conversation, but it's typical LC, and, and Don, he was, he was calm all of the time, no matter what is going on, just sat there and nodding his head and, you know, and listening to him and trying to respond. But Elsie, he doesn't want to hear anything that Don has to say. And, um, by the way, every conversation that's in the book, um, you know, those, um, everything that's been recorded, those are actual uh, conversations. You know, that's not just something that, you know, I'm illustrating, but... Um, so some of it is a little hard to read because some of it is, you know, uh, really there's a lot of anger there and, and mm-hmm. not so much nice talk at times. But um, that is, you know, the, the truth is that it, it is what it is. But Beth eventually uh, realized what was going on and then a horrible thing happened um, that also turned out to be just a huge blessing because um, Beth was a smoker. And the first thing she did, which Elsie knew very well, was when she would come home in the evening and walk into her apartment, she would light a cigarette up as she came in the door. Um, but after she started pulling away from Elsie and and had was learning what actually had happened from us, um, one day she comes home and um, her apartment is full of gas from her uh, kitchen stove, from her, from her gas. And... For whatever reason, again, we know it's divine intervention, but that's the one day she did not light up a cigarette when she walked into her house, or else Beth would not be here with us today. And um, we have no way of knowing, or actually we have no way of proving that Elsie had anything to do with that, but, you know, uh, we're all fairly confident that that he meant to, um, to kill her in that incident. Certainly. Now, you find the girlfriend of Rex Teller, Sherry yes. Martin. Sherry Martin, what does she have to say? Wow. Talking to her was, um, it was like talking with all these women from Elsie's past all over again. One of the things that we did one of the, the, in this investigation that, that took four years, we went to the federal prison and we listened to hours of recorded conversation between Keller and other people, but the most, the bulk of the conversations were between him and, and his girlfriend. And his degree of suspicion and jealousy and control was, well, frankly, it was nauseating. Um, it was just unbelievable. So by the time we talked to her, we already knew all of that. We knew how we talked to her. We knew what the how the relationship was going, and it was totally dysfunctional. And she was able to share some specific incidents with us that she had already reported to the police of uh, domestic violence, of him um, assaulting her and her disabled and handicapped son. And um, it was just, it was heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. But um, he was also extremely jealous and controlling. And she, again, just like these other women, cooperated once she knew what this investigation was and 
and and realize too that it would have been a mistake to be involved with these people. And they all said to you, "I don't want to testify," didn't they? Every single one of them, and one one lady in particular, we had she came outside. Her family was inside, and she told us. She said, "My husband does not know that I was married for a short time to Underwood." Please don't tell him. Please don't get me involved in this case. I'll tell you what you want to know, but please just, uh, you know, leave me out of this. And it was very typical. Now, um, after he was in custody and he was in jail, they were able to breathe a little easier. And the more time passed um, and the more they got to know and trust us, they did um, come forward and were prepared to testify. Unfortunately, um, the uh, judge uh, sided with uh, the motion of the defense um, who claimed that their relationships were, with LC were not relevant to the, to the homicide um, that was being um, prosecuted, and so the judge did not allow their testimony. But they, but they were there, and they, um, they were very brave, and they had prepared themselves, and they were going to testify against him. Um, but the, in the end, they did not have to. You talked about what was allowed and what wasn't, and so that was unfortunate. You didn't get that previous testimony from those women. But the judge did allow Ruscher to introduce the, the Catherine Miller murder and all of the related evidence, despite yes. that he had not been charged for that offense. So that is a, a major victory for the prosecution, isn't it? It was. The 404B evidence was... Um, was uh, I think that was very critical. Um, all of the incidents, um, Victor's disappearance, well, as it turns out, we believe that Victor was murdered um, about uh, four days before Catherine Miller, and all of the incidents, everything that was occurring, were so intertwined, it would have been very difficult to separate um, all of the evidence uh, showing that he had murdered Catherine Miller from the, mm-hmm. from the Victor Gunnarsson evidence. It's not impossible. And so we were very glad we did not have to try and take take all of that information apart. This was a capital, so he was assigned to attorneys. One was uh, experienced capital case attorney. Um, you talk about the trial opening June 27, 1997, after three and a half years of work. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, the defense, its contention was that L.C. Underwood was too disabled, and he certainly couldn't do all the stuff involved in that murder. Essentially, uh, that's what they had said as a defense. Tell us what Mm -hmm. the prosecution laid out as the motive and the reason for this murder. Well, the motives, um, by the time all the witnesses got through testifying, the the motives were very obvious. Um, He wanted to isolate Kay from anybody that um, was advising her to stay away from him or that anybody that she could turn to for emotional support, such as her mother, and certainly any other men that she became involved with, um, uh, which was obviously Victor Gunnarsson. Um, But the... um, the motive as far as what the prosecutors introduced was um, uh, the same old story we hear very frequently in society. The the insecurity, the, the pathological jealousy and uh, the lying and, and the violence, domestic violence. And that's one reason that I wanted 
to get the book published because people need to understand that there are people out there who have these issues and they should not be ignoring the red flags when they instinctively, you know, when something comes up in a relationship that they should pay more attention to instead of just ignoring it, sweeping it under the rug, they really should look into that. And that's uh, something that Kay Whedon wants to do. She wants to you know, talk with not just women but other people who are victimized by um, by people who are capable of doing the things that Elsie Underwood has done. Yes. You also have something very interesting go on in the trial. You have these competent appointed attorneys, but there is talk of a cassette tape. Tell <laughs> us about this cassette tape controversy. Well, as you know, we did not, um, in the book, we did not, uh, and through the investigation, we were not able to find the guns, um, which we believe were the murder weapons in both Catherine Miller and Victor Gunnarsson cases. Um, but Underwood had not offered us a reasonable explanation from where the guns for where the guns were. He knew that we knew that he had them, but, and then all of a sudden he did not have them, but he would not comment or cooperate or offer us any kind of reasonable explanation as to where they were, other than he had given them to his, um, what he called his brothers or his stepbrothers um, in Ohio, and they were actually no relation to him, but um, he, had, uh, he had gotten close to this couple at the orphanage. And um, so what cassette, the cassette that was being referred to was something that Keller told us about that he and Elsie Underwood had created, which was uh, a recorded conversation in which Keller was pretending to be one of those so-called brothers um, acknowledging receipt of the guns from Underwood to offer an explanation as to what happened to them. And um, we never got our hands on that tape. We knew of its existence. And um, at one point we knew that um, Underwood's attorneys, uh, most likely the attorneys he had hired in Salisbury, not the ones appointed in the capital murder case, had that tape. But um, the the judge ordered that if the defense had it, they were to produce it. And so in the middle of the murder trial, um, it stops. Then his attorneys are basically um, having to answer to the judge in a hearing as to um, that cassette tape because had they had we been able to produce that and and they had it, then they would have been withholding you know evidence in a murder trial and would have been in a um, a heap of trouble. But yes. as it turns out, they came in with their own attorney who um, told the judge that um, that they were not commenting on whether that tape existed, um, but that it was not at that time in their possession and they could not produce it. And so the judge kind of let it go at that point. I kind of summarized what happened in the trial in terms of the defense thinking that they didn't really need to provide evidence uh, and and uh, as 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 common, uh, filed a motion to dismiss, and of course the judge right. dismissed that. But they just said basically that um, you know that he was too disabled to be able to do this, and so the prosecution uh, had the onus basically to come out and ex- and explain their entire case um, to a jury. Now this being a capital case, mm-hmm. there's mitigating and aggravating circumstances towards that. Right. What happens at this 
in, in regards to that with the jury, with the death penalty? What happens? It was a capital case, and um, the um, prosecutors, uh, Tom Brewster and his assistant, Jerry Wilson, both extremely capable and, and did a great job. Um, they made very compelling arguments, and the jury did come back with 11 to 1 for the death penalty. Only one juror just could not commit. And as it turns out, I had a family member in, a, in, a, in another criminal case that caused them to be sympathetic towards the defendant, uh, information that we were not aware of during jury selection. And um, otherwise, he would have uh, gotten the death penalty. But, but he did not because it was not unanimous and it was 11 to 1. Then he was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Victor Gunnarsson, first-degree murder, and an additional 40 years for um, first-degree kidnapping, hence the name of the book, First-Degree Rage. Mm. And this is a consecutive sentencing, so not any of this doesn't count concurrent sentencing. This is consecutive sentencing. That's correct. It was consecutive. You talked about, uh, again, a dramatic part of the trial to a great degree is Kay Whedon. Um, yes. Of course, realizing now what a fool she was uh, beyond naivety, I would think, because, of course, we have the benefit of the hindsight. So we know we're almost yelling at Kay, what are you doing? What do you Don't do this. Don't do that. It's incredible. <laughs> right. But how did she fare at the trial, and what did you say to her afterwards? Well, I've talked with Kay many times um, before and after the trial, and, uh, and she is a friend of mine um, because, you know, I felt like I went through all of that with her, and, you know, she, she feels like, you know, I'm someone who understood because I knew what she had gone through, that Kay Whedon has suffered a lot. And um, it is easy to criticize her judgment, um, but she's a very compassionate person, and when L.C. Underwood would do things like fake a suicide attempt and call her up and fire the gun off in the phone, you know, she would go and check on him and she would make sure that police were there and that he was okay. She went above and beyond, not necessarily because she was naive, but because she's a compassionate and caring person. And um, she wanted to ensure his safety, even though she didn't want to be in a relationship with him. You know, she didn't want anything to happen to him. And at this point, no one was dead. Victor Gunnarsson had not been kidnapped and murdered, and her mother was still alive and well and just living, you know, right down the street. So, you know, we don't think of other people in terms of they're apt to commit the very worst. Um, and she had no way of knowing what, how much evil was in Elsie's heart. But um, she not only suffered those kind of things from him, but there were many times when... Well, for instance, one the one uh, parent of one of Jason's friends asked them not to let Jason come over there anymore because things were happening to Kay. They didn't know if she was in danger, but they didn't want Jason over there putting their family and their son in danger. And and so Kay is just like astounded at you know being ostracized by some of her friends. And um, so there's a lot more things going on and a lot more things she endured other than just at the hand of L.C. Um, she's being terrorized. She's, she doesn't believe that her son is involved in drugs, but somebody is targeting them for some reason. She can't 
imagine that is Elsie, and in particular, Elsie was at her house with her when she would get a phone call or two. Um, he had orchestrated that, but she wasn't aware of that. So she's thinking there's no way that he could have done that. And in many cases like this, um, once the victim falls under the spell of uh, these kinds of people, they their vision uh, is limited as far as being able to see or predict, you know, what what they might do. And so... I, I, I'm a little defensive of of, of of Kay and other women like that. You know, it's just like a domestic violence situation. Why don't they just leave? Why don't they just leave? But um, it's like one lady told me after being in a, in a marriage of domestic violence for 25 years, she said, after you get told every day of your life for 25 years that you're stupid and helpless, after a while you start believing it. And um, so, you know, I hate that... Uh, victims find themselves in, in those situations, but they're but usually these people are you know pretty smooth operators. They're very convincing at first, and then good people just want to believe the the best about other people, and that's not always a, a good assumption to make. That's not always a good judgment to exercise. And the thing is, too, what he used is uh, again a little bit different than some psychopathic individuals personalities would use on their their loved ones or people that they claim mm-hmm. to love but he started off with a really good sob story of his upbringing and so he oh, used yeah. that his whole life to 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 get that kind of sympathy from people and he used it constantly to plead and beg and say look at this is just a product he said that with the k over and over again, that this was a product of his upbringing and he was trying to work on and he was getting medication and he used every lie he could to say right. his mother had cancer, he was spending all his money on her cancer. So he made himself to be a martyr, but as you write in the book, most of these people just couldn't stand it after a while. He just drove people away yeah. with his whining sure, yeah. and, his, and always his persecution complex that this guy had throughout but it is fascinating right. to see that that Kay should have been able to see some things that as we're reading this book like I say it's very very obvious that he has something to do with her mother's murder and then with the mm-hmm. disappearance of this person she just started a relationship with however we get the benefit of that story um, I want to thank you very much Paula for coming on and talking about first degree rage um, the Thank true you story so much for having me. Um, this is a Wild Blue Press release, um, so uh, this book can be found everywhere on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and everywhere else. Um, so thank you very much for this, and uh, I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night.